one afternoon I always remember that was right at the beginning of my company um, where a very wealthy collector said the reason you won't succeed and I can is because you need food to it and I don't so therefore I can constantly reinvest to grow a bigger business wow. and I remember because I think it's I, I had to sink it in quite a few times I think because um, obviously I, I think any amount of discrimination you find um, and I'm sure you know you, you literally feel through so many different emotions so you're trying to kind of pick which one is it really that I'm feeling about this sentence that's the most relevant one right but I think it's it's interesting because it's exactly what you say I think the reason I succeeded and he didn't is because I, I needed food to eat and I needed to make sense of things and there was no net and there was no protection and they had to work like the plan A had to be the plan A right um, and right. there was no plan B exactly. um, so in a way he couldn't be more wrong Welcome back to Conversations with Her. My name is Phaedra Prendergast, Editor-in-Chief of WTC Magazine, the number one print and digital magazine for all things enterprise and community. I share stories of women who are typically never found on the front line and place them on our front covers to inspire the next generation of female leaders. This week, I'm joined by the phenomenal Maureen Tangi, founder of the MT Art Agency, the first talent and creative agency of its kind, challenging the art sector's traditional model and providing opportunity and platform to all upcoming artists across the world. I believe you were studying before when you did get that opportunity um, yeah. to run your own gallery. So um, speak to me, um, maybe even from the age of, you know, a teenager. It starts on a tiny island off the west coast of France, mm-hmm. which is called Ile de Ré. Um, that's where I grew up for 17 years. There's 9,000 people a year, so um, and obviously a lot more tourists during the summer. So you are five of the same age in your school. Mm-hmm. And it, although it's a very beautiful island, so kind of you get an understanding that beauty matters, you know, space and, and visuals matter. Um, it's very restricted in terms of um, kind of diversity of content because everyone thinks the same way and it's quite limiting if I think you're someone that's quite creative. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the burst of my creativity and the need to be creative, um, that's where I always kind of say that it's important for me to describe where I come from because it's, it's, it's built on this. It's built on the fact that I had such appreciation to be going off to the sea and see how beautiful that was and, and how much something beautiful can make me feel so much better. Mm-hmm. But equally, I was... Tr- I, I was you know, wishing to be exposed to people who were thinking differently constantly, which right. is now my job, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so coming from a place like this, you know, you don't have other jobs and doctor, you know, teacher, all of this. You don't definitely don't have an art world and, and don't have like jobs in the creative space. But I knew that those two things mattered. Like I somehow wanted to be in a world that was really visually beautiful and inspiring. Yeah. And, I, and I had to find this kind of really interesting people. Um, and was that something too cliche? At the start, I found those people in my books because that just, that's where they existed a lot more than um, in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and my books, therefore, got me to want to um, to study literature and, and study the arts um, because they seem to be in those books, all those characters. So fast forward now to kind of the start of my career. Um, I applied for an internship um, to the BBC when I was 19 mm-hmm. and I had just finished studying uh, literature and classics and um, I sent them a poem which the most I thought was mad, but luckily <laughs> mad enough to kind of uh, get me on board uh, for that month. Right. And and that was a revelation. It was a revelation to think those people are talking about interesting, creative stuff all day, and that's a job, you know? Right. Like, I could do this basically 24-7. So I think it's it was so inspiring to see and I remember even wearing like the little necklace of BBC all day, even when I was on that BBC, just because I was so proud. I was like, this is such a 
such a world that I want to be part of. Everyone seems really smart and, and really interesting and, and everything is visually super inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on site as an intern, I was very lucky to be approached to be um, a young gallery manager by someone quite known called Steve Lazaridis who discovered Banksy and JR. Right. Um, I think, again, I was beyond keen. I would have bought your, your coffee, your printer, polish your shoes and even, well, you know, down the floor if needs be. I, wow. I really wanted to be a part of the sector. Right. And, and I think that must have sounded quite different because, you know, they can be a, a form of social snobism and people might not want to look very keen in our sector. And I was keen as it comes. Like there was no, there was no game. I just, I really wanted to basically work in it. Yeah. Um, so I got given an incredible opportunity therefore to be a young Gary manager when I was 21 under him. And the very lucky factor of that is that he was very much an outsider. Um, and in fact, the Gary's image was called the Outsider's Gallery under him. Right. Um, and, you know, by having spotted Banksy or JR, he was someone that therefore had brought people that were not part of the art world into the art world. Mm-hmm. And he also had a background um, where he came from a council estate, which was super rare for the sector. So it's super luckily I landed with someone that could, you know, did it subconsciously, but showed me that there were ways to do things differently in a yes. sector that was yes. always really traditional. Yes. So. Um, incredibly valuable first call yeah. uh, of thought and and although he never kind of clarified all of this it's just the exposure of understanding that you could do things differently that was really powerful right. um, so continuing on Keen as a bunny personality because that was very much who I was I, I was approached two years on from my job so I was still I was still very much running the gallery started doing quite a lot of press and, and TV for that gallery as well and just making sure that the artists were on the map. Um, I, I had an investor called Steph Sebag. And so Steph was um, owning an advertising company in LA and he had been traveling to London for a shoot that we're doing. He walked into the gallery and he wanted to invest in someone to open a gallery in Los Angeles. Felt that I was the right candidate for the way I was you know, talking about art, which he felt was very different to the way that usually it feels quite closed off. Um, so at 23, that was two years later from how I signed the job, he said, how about we do you an investment visa and I invest on you to open your own gallery in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the center of Beverly Hills. And this was named after the the, the island I came from, the Dure Gallery. Mm-hmm. And that opened up with Demi Moore, all the kind of celebrity LA crowd, um, which at 23, I wasn't partially kind of aware this even existed as a world. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I was very new to even posing. I didn't even know how to pose at the time. Right. But it's, it's and, and I obviously said yes. I think I was someone that, I was such a yes person, but also, being quite romantic about life in general, right. I could, I would, I could see if the opportunity felt right and they felt right as part of the story, I would be able to just jump on a flight and do it. Right. Um, and, and so I therefore did it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when in LA, I, I was like, okay, well, you know, you are now getting more and more exactly to what you wanted to do, working with really interesting creators and artists mm-hmm. and, and being so by everything that's beautiful. But the more I dig into it, the the more I was like, there's something missing where what I loved about the sea um, was the fact that everyone could come to it. So as a kid, I could come to it and see it. It didn't really matter whether I was part of anything special. Right. It was available for everyone. And and there was something here that just didn't feel quite right, especially given my background with that. Um, and so this another person that therefore met at the time, which enormously influenced my way of thinking called Michael Lovitz, who started CAA, has told it since, but it's one of the largest talent agencies in the world alongside UTA and William Morris. Mm-hmm. Um, he was deemed at the time in the 80s and 90s as one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. And he therefore luckily mentored me on, on a weekly basis. And the more he talked about how he built that talent agency, how you know, he was behind Jurassic Park or Steven Spielberg and how he got the content of, the, of his talents to inspire millions of people. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's actually what I want. I would like, back to the idea of the sea, but I want something that's much more mainstream and I want my talents to be much more at the heart of people's life 
than what I'm doing now in my gallery where I'm seeing two people a day and they're just all the same, you know, in terms yeah. of backgrounds. Yeah. So, so that felt like the more he described, therefore, his job the, and, and the company had built, the more I was just like, that is sadly what I want to do. So I have to take another risk. And, and I think they are... Luckily, I think at 25, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a, a relation, long-term relationship. I I wasn't scared of being on a sofa bed for a while. Um, wow. And, and That's I didn't... And what you just said. Yeah, it's well. I think it's a, it's kind of the joy of the age, right? You just mm. and you have a, you have a fear of. You're also ignorant, and you have a fear of very little because you don't know how hard it is to build a company. You don't understand. You know, I come off from things I felt. This is like the right idea. Why yeah. don't I do it? Yeah. Um, type of attitude. And and I haven't been warned by hundreds of people that this is one of the hardest things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my ignorance was definitely bliss. And on the 25 ideas, just therefore quit the Beverly Hills Gallery as a partnership and returned to London um, completely broke and therefore deciding to do that on my own. Um, and it felt right. It's one of those things, I think maybe when you're a romantic character, you just like, it just feels right. So I've just got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore this, those principles were applied. Um, and we are now at MTR's agency. I remember strongly the day I just sat down and on a piece of paper put all the key values of the company that I would never compromise on. Yeah. And it felt so nice because it felt so, it, it felt more like a philosophy than, than a business. Okay, and what was on that list? Or the some list of the was, I think it was, it was kind of out of the back of my LA experience mm-hmm. of really never compromising on the fact that um, my talents will be part of everyone's life and will inspire everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, I could never fully become part of the exclusive or the elitist world of our sector. Mm-hmm. I could for sure, you know, I think my idea of being inclusive is that I could definitely sell to them and I could have my my talents work with them. Mm-hmm. But that could not be my, my only world because it just, I would die slowly, I think, if that was all I was doing. Yeah. Um, and I and I couldn't do that. Um, physically, I couldn't do it. I think the, the use of values... Which was, and I think it's interesting because we became the first B Corp in the sector, but the user values were, I was, I think we were quite left-wing socialists for the sector. Um, and I think at the time I used to look at this when I wrote on a piece of paper thinking, how am I going to match this with one of the most conservative sector? But equally, I think that's what has become our strengths. That's why we are become this, why we um, we act the way that we do. Is why we've been able to recruit an amazing team that's behind it. Um, but I think deep down in my in, in my heart, I was just like, I think politically, I'm much more of a socialist um, engagement than I am a conservative engagement, and I have to somehow respect that within the engagement of my business. I can't have you know, poorly paid in 10. I can't have, I can't run any of the companies the way the sector is doing it. Right. And and I think with, again, the age, you just like, I'm just going to have to do it differently, obviously, kind of not understanding all the changes that will come with it. But it is, it has become, I mean, a lovely story because I think we were one of the first companies to raise really kind of key issues that finally we're hearing about in the sector because of all of this, mm-hmm. and and I was told at the time that you can be political, um, and and do what I do, and but I couldn't be any, I couldn't be anything else because right. for me, my artists, you know, all of them. If I think of Delphine Yellow or David Savage-Chabert, who today they are constantly defending values, causes, principles. You know, they are political. Right. They they do want things to change for the better. Um, and I think for me to pretend that we were not political will be therefore off because mm-hmm. we were um and and it's just i think it's a commitment to therefore respecting that as much as people were telling us that this was the wrong move um and accepting that maybe we were therefore thinking differently than most of the sector right. um so very liberating i think to put it down i think it's it's something i would always advise because it's almost a thing that you can't compromise and therefore being self-aware of them knows where you need to put your limits right. and as much as there are tough compromises because you know you could get along with people much more easily than if you hadn't put that on the paper 
you also now div, div don't know what you can carry when you can't carry. Um, and I know there's such an artist because of what they, the way they behave or uh, morally or anything, I couldn't carry them. I couldn't have them on board and same with uh, the, the team as well. And I think that's nice because it means your vision, the culture of the company, the, the values that you put behind it are quite clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean you hate the rest. It just means you are clear in and on on what is important for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so without knowing this, it wasn't a business strategy. It was very much a philosophy strategy. But I think looking back, it was actually essential. I think this is, you know, now that we've been making that little video today, and listening to all the, um, all our community, we hear the word vision a lot. Yeah. And for them, it seems quite powerful, the, the, the strength of the vision we had in the beginning. And I think that's because that vision was not resting on a business case. It was resting on a philosophy case. It was resting on values more than purely we saw a gap in the market and we wanted to make tons of money from it. Right. But luckily this has ended up being a business that also economically made a lot of sense mm-hmm. as long as made a lot of social sense as well. So we're really lucky and fortunate that we're in that position where we think we're doing the right thing and we hope we are. Um, but we also are growing a business, if that makes sense. I mean, I think it's quite magical at the stage we're in. We are the suppliers to the Crown Estates in Westminster for public arts here in London. We've done there's really amazing uh, public art project in the centre of Paris with like 800 metres with our artist SAVE with the Eiffel Tower, Mayor of Paris, the Financial Times, and then 30 companies. And and we have been able to do projects that I think it's a little contract with yourself that I'm sure you can relate to mm-hmm. with that five years old self of, you know, with me when I'm like, that my five years old will be really happy. Like I, I keep on stepping onto cool campaign or public art projects or collaborations that they've done or mm-hmm. even sounds silly but June Angelis one you may have been I think yes actually she was part of your conference yeah. you wouldn't have June yeah. so June just got a work of David today one of our artists and she was part of the video today as well and she cried when she saw the work and I think it's I'm really building something that I think my five years old could attend every day of my life and be like I'm really happy what I'm saying. So it's just, it's a really nice, uh, it's such a lovely emotion to see, you know, we've succeeded to build a story that makes sense, really 360. And I think all the projects, I hope that people from every type of background are awfully, you know, very inspired by what we're doing. So that's, it's, it's become a, a reality, which is quite magical for us to witness. Definitely. I really love that. And tell me about, you know, the people that you work with, your artists, your team, and so on. Where did you find this passion, or when did you realize that you had a passion, you know, for people and this industry? Um, and just like you said, it wasn't that you just saw a gap in the market, and you know, what was just after wanting to make a lot of money. You genuinely actually care about what happens in that industry. So when did you realize that? this was something you really wanted to go for um, and how has that kept you going even on those days where it's been you know harder than usual where you're not as motivated but you just know you have to keep going for all the people that do need you yeah um, I have the answer for that so I think um, first and foremost, I think maybe that's why Michael Ritz was so inspiring from the Hollywood side. But I love stories. I love good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we all do. I think given what you do, I think you would also relate to liking good stories. And so I think my artists are that for me. Like, you know, you, I can have a shit day and I can sit like today when I saw David speaking about his art and, and you know, him as a person and it just calms me down and makes me feel so much better just about the world about everything it just it's such a nice calming feeling to think that person is uber talented is really inspiring and how nice are we putting a spotlight on that mm-hmm. um as a job so i think it's that's where it first started because i, I remember even in in tough days just listening to their thinking to what they're trying to push they're so much more courageous than i like as an entrepreneur if one of my artists fails, it's difficult, but I have other artists that are striving because mm-hmm. the company's striving. They've got just themselves, you know, and of course they have assistance and everything, but they very much put their name on the line to making sure that they will succeed, which is a courage and a, 
and the bravery that I really enormously respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think them first and foremost is are the people that we work for. Um, after this, I think of course, like all the businesses, has become most of my clients where. You know, we now have clients who completely trust us. We are at the minute working on Piccadilly Circus on doing a really crazy public art project there. And I start, I have now clients who are talking again to my five years old self and asking me what is the most magical thing you can do mm-hmm. with your artists on this. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I'm super grateful for this because I can take like what used to be just pure imagination and make that tangible, which is um, very powerful for the brain. They apparently say that happiness is built on people who uh, go from ideas to execution constantly because I think there's something quite magical to think, you know, your brain or multiple brains came up with something ideas-wise and then you get to touch it or feel it like yeah. a few months later. Yeah. And I think that's that's almost like a body and mind thing where like you feel really kind of happy about that. Um, team wise, it's, I think it's, and I'm sure you've been there as well. It's, it's a long road of finding the right people. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the reason of my current happiness is because like Lise, Arlo and Jan Matthias, who are two of my colleagues, have sold their companies and joined me. Um, Jan has led his creative agency for 20 years and Lise has led it, her taken out platform for six. And having ex-entrepreneurs on board, behaving in an entrepreneurial way is amazing. They are smarter than I. They are more expert than I on many topics. Yeah. Um, and so that's... I think I was someone... I love freedom and I love independence. I don't like being the police person of anyone mm-hmm. and I think my happiness team wise is really now coming in the sense that like I have people who are teaching me things constantly who are way smarter and who I can constantly work with as equals and of course we have a junior team but I think that's really kind of at, at the heart of why the business is doing really well and Blue Gaiden is also one of them from our senior team when she um, recently left Vogue after 10 years as a director of partnership and joined us and it's just it's such a it's such a joy because I like I think when you are a talent agency and a creative agency you like ideas you like brains you like smart anything and and I like to have this at the heart of the team that I can see those brains constantly teaching me stuff um Mm -hmm. so I was just looking forward to growing a team of brains and looking after those brains the the way we build the culture of the company is that uh, some of my team and artists have shares in the companies. Um, we're very lucky that we were profitable from uh, year one of the business, which means that I'm a very large shareholder mm-hmm. and there's only a small percentage for the investors. But it also means that um, my team and artists can therefore be a part of the business in a deep sense, um, which I really like. And and I think that represents also our company culture of we do we love equality first of all that's definitely one of our key values but therefore we do represent this equality in the way everyone is managed i think we want to really be a place where ideas are welcomed and initiatives are being taken and and you know there's no this kind of really imposing hierarchy and all these things which for me feels much more natural they are the things i feel that much more right than the other way around are completely different to the way my sector does it where usually you have very solid hierarchy loads of assistance uh, very loads of unpaid interns and and that kind of fear towards the hierarchy we much more of a lateral management and the way we work with our artists we much more feel as a team we don't feel we own them of course they're assigned to us and of course it's like you know we need to make sure they going to be really successful but I feel a team with all these people whether it's my investors my partners my clients my colleagues I feel a team member um in doing that and and I hope that this is what I continue to grow and I hope therefore we can continue to attract um entrepreneurs as well to join because I think that's such a nice um addition because it's a different way of thinking as well than just purely corporate people definitely Definitely. And you mentioned earlier, actually, something that I want to touch on. Um, And you were speaking about the fact that, of course, starting out, many didn't actually believe that this was something that you could do. And they they often advised you um, on the way that things had to be done, because that was what was seen. And um, I guess because this had never been done before, 
um, there were a lot of people that were, in quote, against what you were trying to do. Um, but I honestly believe for anything to be successful, which this clearly has been for the past six years, you know, people have to go up against it. Um, they have to not believe it. Um, but how did you manage to sustain that belief that it was going to work? Um, and how did you deal with, you know, the opinions of others that did believe that it wasn't possible? I think there's one. So there's there's um one afternoon I always remember that was right at the beginning of my company, um where a very wealthy collector said the reason you won't succeed and I can is because you need food to eat, to, you need food to eat, and I don't. So therefore, I can constantly reinvest to grow a bigger business. Wow! And that sentence was just. I remember because I think it's, I had to sink it in quite a few times, I think, because um, obviously I think any moment of discrimination you find, um, and I'm sure you know, you, you literally feel through so many different emotions, so you're trying to kind of pick which one is it really that I'm feeling about this sentence. That's the most relevant one. Right. But I think it's it's interesting because it's exactly what you say. I think the reason I succeeded and he didn't is because I, I needed food to eat and I needed to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. And there was no net and there was no protection and it had to work. Like the plan A had to be the plan A. Right. Um, right. And there was no plan B. Exactly. Um, so in a way, he couldn't be more wrong. But it, it is, I think the fact that he even said it... Um, is, is fascinating and shows how the sector thinks about a young girl that's not coming from a wealthy background trying to disrupt the sector. Mm -hmm. And and I think I've overheard this over the, the first few years where statements like being too ambitious, whatever that means, um, which I think is very also European, less American about it, um, and just statements that was very harsh, mm -hmm. which shows a deep fear to change something in the sector that has been seen as not being able to change because 90% of the demographic of the sector are people who do not like change, are very conservative, inherited a lot, and therefore right. do not kind of welcome change. Right. Um I, I guess as a business style, I always negotiate on principles. So even when I make deals financially, I have thought about both parties and I try to really make sense of a deal that suits both parties. In the way I therefore responded to it, it's the same way I responded upon principle. If I'm convinced of something upon principles, it's very difficult to make me uh, let it go of that because it's, an, it's, an, it's a small anger inside the stomach to think, that this person can still say this. I think there's almost a duty to think this has to change because if if everyone feels the sector only belongs to the very wealthy when the visual language belongs to all of us, um, and if you don't change that, I think it's very dangerous. I think it's it, it makes the visual language something that's a language that's no more about everyone and just for the few. And... And I don't know, all these things really bother my stomach. I think that the best way I can describe it is, is really being bothered in the stomach that this couldn't be something that could exist. Mm -hmm. um, and that's therefore would help kind of pushing forward. But it's just, yeah, it's a mix of anger, but also a mix of feeling that this has to exist. There's almost... Um, it almost feels existential that this idea needs to exist. Um, and recently as the sector is finally moving towards the right direction, I hear it more and more. And I think it's, yeah, it felt right. It really felt right that this, all these sentences felt wrong. Although they were much more powerful than I, and they were much wealthier than I, the sentences when they said them felt wrong. And I can't express it in any other way than just this feeling of feeling wrong. And, and in my stomach, therefore, I just, I was like, I can't accept it. There's something in my brain that just refuses to accept that sentence because in that sentence itself, I feel very challenged to believe that's what we should hope for the reality, if that makes sense. Definitely. That definitely does make a lot of sense. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned something that I want to um, go into further, actually. Um, and you said uh, that it's uh, almost the European way of thinking. Um, and that just made me think, um, a lot about something that uh, was on my mind a lot and something I've heard my, my own mentor talk about. Um, and it was just that, of course, you've done business in America as well. So I wanted to ask you about that. Did you find life in America different to life in London here in the UK? And how I mean that is, of course, 
with Americans, uh, I personally believe anyway, uh, that their belief system and the way that they do things, for them, it seems as though they're a lot more open, you know, um, and especially as you were talking about change um, and speaking that um, for a lot of people here, uh, you know, they don't particularly like change. Uh, whereas I believe in America, it's quite the opposite. Um, and people really, you know, take risks and go for things and nothing really seems impossible to anyone there, in my opinion. So did you find life in America different? Yeah, so I think the, the explanation apparently is is the, the sensation towards money. So the fact that in America, you're very close to who's made the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Europe, you're much further away in terms of the power circles. Right. So you're almost in the dynamic of trying to conserve the money you've made here right. in comparison of actually taking risk with it in the States because you're much closer to it. Wow. So I think as a self-made, I, I'm very comfortable with risk um, wow. in terms of how I play it, how I invest with it because... Yeah. You just you've, you have an understanding of how this was made in the first place. Exactly. So you therefore risk doesn't mean as much as someone who's never taken them. Exactly. So that's you know that's almost in the structure of the societies like they that's inherent to them. I think the the reason again back to kind of access to visual language, but also access to successes in business, which is also what you're putting a spotlight on, is is I got lucky to see people like Michael Levitz, like Yannick Pond, one of my earliest mentor and collective when I was even younger than with Michael, to see people who have made it in a big way. Right. And and I think, and Michael and him both come from middle-class backgrounds. There was nothing kind of inherently kind of special about their background that meant that they could be huge successes. That was, I think... That was lucky because I think exposure matters so much that by the second you see it's possible, your brain thinks about it differently. Now, and and I think it's, I had seen that they had done it. So, of course, I couldn't tell you exactly from point A to point B had they had done it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that really made a strong impact on me. And in a weird way, and I think as a woman entrepreneur, it's always so funny, I didn't even think of my gender because I've been exposed to so many men at the time and there was no women role model I could look up to yeah. in the sector I was in. Um, that in a weird way, I wasn't even thinking it was a woman. I was just like thinking, oh, they've done it. So I could do it. Yes, yes. And I didn't see any difference yes. because because that's all I, I was seeing. I wasn't even yeah. thinking they were different to me. That makes sense. Um, yes, that makes so sense. I think exposure is key. It's just just someone telling you, I did that, and then you thinking, okay, well, then if it's in the realm of possibilities, then why do I just try and do it myself? Exactly. Maureen, I love that. That was a very, that was a perfect explanation. Um, and you mentioned something else when you were speaking about risk. Um, and actually on Sunday, one of my mentors actually said that people often mistake risks uh, for recklessness. Um, so what I mean by that is... That's yeah. a very strong statement. That's very true. I <laughs> yeah. really agree with him. Oh, perfect. Or her, sorry. I said him or her. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a him. See? Yes, yes. It's a him, yes. Um, and I was actually going to go into an explanation, but it seems as though, you know, you understand what I mean. So, yes, people often, you know, see risk and they think that it's reckless. But as you said yourself and as you are, you know, a, a testament, a living testament, uh, that if you weren't taking those risks, if you didn't take the risk, then you wouldn't actually have anything to show uh, now. Uh, so what you said was very, very powerful. It's, such a, it's very true. And I think it's interesting because... What he's saying is very resonates because I think people do confuse it very strongly. When I think my understanding of risk is much more an understanding of how much control do you have, how much do you not have, and how do you balance both of them mm-hmm. um, when you make the decision. And it's it's yeah, but it's it's fascinating because I'm sure from the outside that people could be thinking, "My God, this is reckless." Yeah. When I think you you can't, and and something else that one of my mentors said was really also was impactful for this. I remember going to a party with the sector with him and he said, most people in this in this room have huge nets that can catch them if they fall. Right. You don't um, need to build your net. And I think the fact that MTL was profitable when very few now startups or businesses are profitable to start with, right. I think was built on that understanding that I had Yannick constantly saying, 
you won't have someone to catch you. So you need to really build foundations that are solid that you can rest on. Um, and And I think just kind of coming out of the pandemic where we were in that position where we were solid, we had this foundation and therefore we could take more risk uh, than than the users. And, and that's how all the public art projects and everything exploded for us last year. We tripled uh, revenue and, and really basically took a whole different lead in the sector. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because of those foundations. And I had it drilled in my brain, I think, from him that I had to be careful that it's such a world of glamour then I was one of the few that just needed to build them because I wouldn't be able to strive otherwise. So that was also really good advice. But this is still the same person that would advise me to take a lot of risk. Right. But with good foundations, which mm-hmm. is which is a, exactly that complement to not being reckless about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how do you manage your days? Um, so I'd, I'd imagine that they are quite busy. You're, you know, an entrepreneur, a businesswoman. You're a mother. You're a wife. Uh, how do you successfully uh, manage your days? Do you do this through to-do lists? Uh, do you know? Do you have a specific focus for the week, for the day? So there's. Um, so I think we were just chatting about it over lunch, actually, because. Um, I was talking about the rabbits that my son carries everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, I'm so glad he has this because his life every day will be a different story because, <laughs> you know, life is changing quite quickly. Right. So it's almost like inherently I wanted to give him something that could comfort him on a daily basis. Right. And he's been carrying this little rabbit, little teddy, since he's born. And and I can see that it doesn't matter if I put him on a train, on a plane, uh, like running at the last minute he's got it and he's got this and he's just like, this is fine. Um, and I think I have this with, you know, my house is like art in it. As a team, we always do launches. We have this thing that even this week when we have five contracts on, which are very large for us, even if we have multiple excuses to miss launch together, we make a point of having lunch that one of us cook mm-hmm. and we share this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's in the back of COVID now because we can. And before this, we will find a way to work out or have a walk that was outside. But mm-hmm. we will keep routines that was very meaningful right. because I think with things that are meaningful, you can push them off right. and say, you know, this we don't have time for that. So I think exactly. as a company, I've made a point of that. As a person... I've made a point of this that even if life is about to kind of collapse and there's so much to do, I still on Monday evening go and get flowers. I put in vases in my flowers in my in my house. I still, you know, organize dinners with friends and still do all this stuff. And and I think as you grow into the job, you realize that you know all the, the stress will come down the next day, but you mm-hmm. might miss out on key events personally and you can't do that because that's also the reason why you're so strong is because personally you're so happy right. so you you have to balance it constantly and there's there's a key example of this when one of so one godmothers of atlas my son manon was the face of loxitan the brand a year back a year and a half ago yeah. and um at the time i had just arrived back from a meeting i rushed with atlas Someone knocked me and therefore stole my mobile phone. And I was just wow. across the corner from attending that party. And I was like, Marine, you cannot stress about something that stupid because tomorrow when you will have been, when you will have fixed your mobile phone issue, you will regret to have been an yeah. anxious being throughout yeah. the entire party, right. which is actually very meaningful to your friend. And I think growing up is actually built on this mm-hmm. it's obviously a stupid example because um per se like i'm very privileged if that's the most dramatic thing i've gone through this is not that dramatic but it's just more, it's just more to say i think daily that's what i've learned is that sense of humor matter little treats matters food all these things matter right. and even if things feel stressful you can't it's in your power to diffuse that um and and i hope therefore i built a company culture where even at peak of stress, we can still make a joke of it and we can still like put perspective on it. And we're not saving people's life. I think we're hopefully inspiring people, but we're not saving lives. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to just constantly get the, the anxiety as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I think you, you want to enjoy the process of life much more than constantly the objectives. And I think I am the most competitive on the objectives, yeah. but I've, and, and I will obviously want that contract to be obtained, but equally, I want to make sure that this is not horrid on the way to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's reflecting on our generation who thinks of company culture, thinks of balance of person professionally very differently. And if I think of Microbits and all the guys who have, done, who have really succeeded in the 80s, it's usually built on toxic company culture and fear mm -hmm. um, and, and where everyone was petrified to be at work and you wouldn't talk much about your personal life and all of these things were not like it was tricky. I want to be in an environment where this is the opposite because I'm very happy for me on both sides. And I know that this is a reason why if I walk into a room and pitch to a client, that's why I'm also very good at my job because I'm very grounded. So I would want everyone on the team to feel the same way. So more an integration and a division, mm -hmm. um, but also just an understanding that you need to care for the little things that matter as well because you regret it otherwise. Absolutely. I love that, Marie. Thank you. Um, and now let's talk a little bit, a bit, little bit about your campaigns. Uh, now, I know you've had um, very, very many. Uh, so, which was your first, um, and which was your most memorable? So, you mean brand campaigns? Yes. Okay. So, I think the so obviously we organise for those campaigns to be for the talents, and then as a face of the company, I've had multiple as well. Yes. Um. So. So I think the for me personally the first one was um, Chloe, yeah. and it was meaningful for many reasons. I was pregnant, and um, I therefore was the first kind of pregnant woman on one of their campaigns, right. um, which which was definitely something very meaningful. And, and that was twenty nineteen, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it was exciting. Um, and, and that was a proper, also, like, I had done little partnerships and campaigns before, but that was a different level. Yeah. And also, I think what was, you know, you remember that turn where it goes very well, what were you doing, where suddenly they were not interested in just featuring me, they wanted to tell the story. Right. And right. I, I'm very much attached to the stories, as you know. So, therefore, I felt really happy that it was about how relevant the story was more than just featuring me, which felt great on all levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reason why that was a real turn and, and a turn for me personally. I think for the artists, you know, when I saw the artworks so of SAPE, um, S-A-Y-P-E, um, with La Beza across 30 airports in Europe, like every time I will ever go to Ethro, uh, his artworks were there. I think that was absolutely magical because you just, you know, it sounds so silly, but I just, I really think that it starts. And I think when the rest of the world starts seeing it, you just, you have this moment of, you know, remembering having him on your sofa bed, yes, yes, um, discussing, trying to like make him something. Absolutely. And then you see that and you're just like so happy. So I think that was, you know, that was really meaningful to me. So, that, but and then since obviously there's been many I think just this week we've been shooting for Glenn Fiddish for a very special collaboration with David Savage Rebert on um, on a sustainable partnership he's done with them mm -hmm. um, but I just I love being behind the camera mm -hmm. when I watch them shining because I'm just like I knew that person had talent and I'm so glad you finally get to see it yeah. Um, yeah. so that's like most meaningful and I think um, for me, this week as well, because it's been a big week so far, it's not really finished. I was just on a Netaporte shoot on Tuesday, which now feels like a week ago, <laughs> in Kew Gardens. In Kew Gardens. Um, and it's nice. I'm at a stage where, like, you know, I'm, I'm liking the fact that it's really about what MTR stands for. They were really keen to talk about the B Corp values. They were really keen for the editorial to kind of dive into the story as well. Right. And that feels amazing. Also, the photographer, maybe you know her, Corbonan McKinsey, right. is, was really amazing. Um, and so I think all these things are right. And, you know, also, I think I was saying this to my colleagues, but shoots have really changed and campaigns have changed. Well, again, this week, such nice people, such good vibes, uh, people really trying to collaborate. It's less the thing of intimidation and more the thing of 
let's bring out the best in everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have the model size and, and all that I do want it because I eat pastries and I love them. But I also, I'm also like any as a woman, I don't have a 14 years old face as well. And and I just like the fact that, you know, it's, sl- it's slowly, too slowly opening up mm-hmm. um, to capturing exactly what, what this is and and I think that's just it's very nice and I look forward to continuing doing this um, um, I'm very much um, happy not to have surgery and continue having wrinkles showing and and I hope as, as the story of MT Arts will continue to grow then you know continue to be part of that thread as a story and say let you know people are continuing to grow with us in that sense so I think that's what is nice about campaigns that they capture you in different phases of your life every time um, and they are building this little storyline the little chapters into one of them you know certainly certainly and I think my final question to you would be do you often you know envision your next 10 or your next 20 years and do you actively make you know intentional decisions now um, towards you know those next 10 and those next 20 years it, it seems to me like you would do especially as you speak about your artists you know and you, you you say that you saw what they could be um, and it's nice now to see you know others see them how you did so I, I do believe that you are that person are you? Yeah, you're right, um, which is nice because that means we connect on that as well. Um, the so the so I do ten years. I mean, it's a bit freaky because generally my life has happened to be exactly what my plan was. So I think my wow. friends are just like this woman is a freak, um, <laughs> which I know is not. I don't want to advertise this because I think it's also should be praise to, to kind of go with the flow. And of course, there's been used highs and lows to highs and it not being my plan. So right. it's not like it's been a straight line and then plan achieved. Right. But I think the most important thing for me was, you know, growing a company that was meaningful, had impact. A strive was at me as well in the sense I could really now, you know, if I'm not there for a day or two, it doesn't really make a difference. Like they are really good people behind it. Right. That was important because... In a weird way, I like to create things that don't need me in the future. Right. Um, and I think I have this relationship with the ideas that I create. Um, and I want to build them in a strength so therefore they will strive and mean a lot of things uh, because they're a strong idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that mattered. And I think my 10 years plan was that for MCR where um, when I was 20, I, I knew I wanted a company that could be that. And I was lucky that 10 years on, this is what it had become. Um, the motherhood thing was definitely completely on the cards as early as 1920. I don't know why, but I, and I think it's funny because reading since, um, it's, it's actually, I mean, luckily a lot of my instincts turned out to be actually factually correct, mm-hmm. um, which I say, because normally you should be researching things more than just relying on your instinct. But I think at 1920, it was almost in full measure how difficult it was to be a mother and and having a company. I don't know where that came from because um as a teacher and, and I haven't had kind of strong um women entrepreneurs around me. Um mm. but it was like almost an anxiety that I had to make sure that not the two of them could strive next to each other. And it was really my plan. It's always been my plan. And I and I wanted that because I knew that motherhood was something that was incredibly essential to me. Um and so I think plan wise this did happen as well that you know, it's, it's been so nice. Like the best year of the company has been one since Atlas is born. So they've really been kind of going side by side mm-hmm. in a way that they both celebrated. I have, I don't have guilt for him partially existed quite existing, quite the opposite. It's full joy. And I want this for that kid. I didn't, you know, I think maybe because I'm a kid that was more by accident than fully desired, I wanted Atlas to be fully desired and I wanted to be so excited that he existed and his dad is the same with him Um, because I wanted him to feel everyone is welcoming me Um, and and the company has been very welcoming to him, like all the artists, same. That was super important for me because I felt I needed to give that mental strength um, to him as well. So it's just, that has been really lovely. My next 10-year plan is... I finished a book in January with a publisher here in London mm-hmm. um, on visual diets, which is the idea that the visuals you consume every day, whether it's digitally or in public art or around you, shapes you. They, they make you the person that you become. Wow. And obviously I, I go in depth about that and 
historically what that effect has. Like if you grow up in an architecture that's very harsh, what does that make of you? And if you watch any type of digital content, what does that make of you? Um, so that's going to come out. And I think it's that's what I would like is to really first push really the necessity of, of the visual world and the visual language, make it more diverse, more inclusive, because that's at the heart of everything that we do. I want to see MTR um, becoming very large, um, but also, therefore, I want to be on the next step to learning to how to do this, which mm-hmm. is already starting. Um, and and also because I think I'm someone that knows that if life doesn't keep on changing because I love movement, yes. um, I will I might struggle to carry it in the same way. Yes. Um, so I think I, I always prepare for the next change because I know my entire system lacks change. Yes. Um, I like progress. I like, you know, in a stupid 19th century romantic way, I like things to progress. Yes. So I think I'm, I'm making sure that this will be the case so that I can be happy with, with the way the company is going. So mm-hmm. that's just making sure that, and I think um, I've already started being more of a mentor for people in the sector, such as Katie Hessel, who's got the podcast, Great Women Artists, who's quite in my sector, yeah. and, and making sure that I can back businesses and to make a change again back in the sector. So I think hopefully I can have more of a macro um, involvement, less just your company. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm be in a position where you can sustain much more people as part of it. So that's basically it. And and I'm artist-wise generally, like they, I'm sort of excited to see who they become. Like it's already crazy to think that they are really becoming people who are not in the sector. So I can't imagine what that will be in 10 years, but I'm excited to be on that journey. And there's definitely a few artists who will hear since the start with me. Um, and it's quite emotional because I think all of us are growing up life-wise um, there was that lovely moment today where David was the first artist that ever signed Savage Reber and just before he, he walked into the shoot that we were organizing today, mm. um, I arrived on my little bicycle because I cycled from London to from Waterloo to Wimbledon mm. and I decided that was the right thing to do. It definitely wasn't the right thing to do. <laughs> and But he was carrying his painting looking a bit lost and six years back it was exactly what it looked like. Um, oh, and nice. and it, was so, it was so nice because I think I'm also generally sharing stories like this with people where we have this flash every time where we're like, you know, remember being amongst boxes on sofa beds with the bicycle and the painting. And yes. so I just I just hope life will keep a few of them, at least if not many of them, so that I can share that. Because I think there's nothing like sharing memories with people that you've grown with. Definitely. Um, and, that, and that was quite magical this morning as an example. Amazing. Marie, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I must say I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's always great to have you. And of course, thank you so much to our listeners at home who tune in every single week. I bet you're wondering who's next, right? Well, you're going to have to tune in next week as we host another conversation with her.